0: I am so honored and blessed to have the opportunity to share what the Lord and I have been working on. Um, like Kyle said, it's extremely bittersweet because it is my last Sunday here, and not just here as in fourth, but like my last Sunday in Tennessee altogether. So I've got my friends here, and I'm sure that you will notice them because hello. <laughs> 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 um Uh, Kyle stole my introduction, I had it planned out. And then we were meeting on Thursday, and he decided he was gonna tell everyone what I get to do here. And then I pouted about it. (laughs) And that same night, the Lord, being who he is, kept me up until 2.30, and I'm like, I just wanna sleep. And he says to me, I can only speak to you before bed because that's the only time you're silent. And I think it was meant to be like a gentle nudge to encourage me to spend more time in silence, but it hurt my feelings. (laughs) It's also very honest. So I'm going to introduce the version of me that you typically don't get to see. The Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday version of me. The version of me that likes really cool t-shirts made by Melinda McColtzik. The version of me that prefers to live in my Air Forces. (laughs) Uh, The version of me that cries during worship songs the version of me that still refers to my parents as mommy and daddy, although I'm 22. And the version of me that likes to kick my dad out of the bed when I visit them so I can sleep with my mom. (laughs) That is the most authentic version of me. And before we dive into the word, there's something else you should know. Like a lot of people in this room, I went to Lipscomb for undergrad. And Mike Williams is sitting right there. (laughs) Um, so if I don't do the best job, you can blame him. <laughs> and I'm certain he will have things to share with me after service. Of <laughs> uh, The most important thing about me, though, is that I love music. So much so that I will take the longest way home, even when gas was like $4, to finish out a song. And the thing about music that's the best is how it brings people of various backgrounds together. Right? Think, take Mark McColtick and I for example. If you looked at us, you would not assume we had any relationship. And for a really long time, that was very true. I mean, he was just Drew, Tyler, and Bryce's dad. Until I started spending more time with his family and I learned that he has a genuine love for 90s rap and (laughs) rap battles. And at that moment, he became like the coolest person that I knew. Because, I mean, think about it. Look at him. I'm young enough to be his granddaughter. So, it doesn't make sense. That relationship would make absolutely no sense. But the only thing, the only thing, truly, truly, the only thing that connects people better than music is Jesus. I mean, think about it. All of us in here, and I will take a survey, and just so you know, lying is a sin, All of us in here have met at least one person we didn't like upon first impressions, yes. Some of y'all are lying. God sees you, but that's okay. However, when you learn that you and that person have a similar taste in music, or TV shows, or better, you both love Jesus, it's easier to form a relationship. Unfortunately, this whole dislike upon first meeting thing was very true in Jesus' day too. If you know anything about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, then today's topic and text will be extremely interesting because I'm going to teach you on the parable of the Good Samaritan. But first, there are a few things to consider. On the front end, I will tell you that Jews and Samaritans are enemies. Although they worship the same God, they worship him in different spaces. Jews in Jerusalem and Samaritans um, near Shechem at Mount Gerizim. Before we get into the story, I want to tell you what's happening beforehand. So Jesus sent out 72 disciples to minister to those in nearby towns. And after they return, Jesus has a rather sassy encounter with an expert in the law this expert asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, being the classy and intelligent man he is, he answers the expert's question with two questions. Jesus asked him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? To which the expert responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. He also quotes Leviticus 19.18, which reads, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus basically says, congratulations, you have passed, go do that. But unfortunately, that wasn't sufficient enough for the expert in the law, because he attempts to pull a fast one on Jesus by asking him to clarify who exactly his neighbors are. And Before we go any further in the story, it's important to note that this man has made a grave mistake because Jesus is about to gently correct him using only two lines. I think the appropriate phrase for this situation is mess around and find out. <laughs> Let us begin the infamous parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's where Jesus absolutely silences this man with only two lines. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him to go and do likewise. Now, there's so much I would love to cover solely based on the historical context of this passage, but I already gave you some news on the front end that Jews and Samaritans were not friends. And that being the case it makes this parable extremely harsh to Jesus' Jewish audience. To make a long story really short, before Jesus' time, uh, the whole nation of Israel was taken into, into captivity and split. So we have the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, that became Judah. So Israel, starts enter, they fall into Assyrian captivity, and they never get out. Essentially, they're there forever, and Israel ceases to exist as an independent nation. So the Jews that were in the northern kingdom in Israel started intermarrying with other nations. And that is how we get the Samaritans, those who are considered half-Jews. So because of two reasons... Jews from Judah believe Samaritans are not actually going to heaven because they are not fully Jew and because they don't worship in Jerusalem. So let's keep that in mind that Jews and Samaritans, in the words of Mac Baxter, have beef. (laughs) Now, Jesus, a born Jew, knowing all of these things, makes the hero in this parable the Samaritan, someone that Jews view as other or enemy. And he doesn't just stop there. He takes it a step further and tells his Jewish audience, this Jewish expert in the law, that he should follow in the footsteps of this metaphorical Samaritan. That's a slap in the face. Can you imagine coming up to Jesus, being like, hey, what can I do to be a better Christian? And he says, go be like the person that you hate. Go be like the person that you don't think is good enough or worthy of the love of God. Man, that's hard. Actually, I might look at Jesus like he was the confused one, but that's okay. Because luckily for us and the expert, that is not the point Jesus is trying to make in this parable. I believe the point Jesus is trying to make is that technically every single person who encountered the man that was robbed and beaten was his neighbor. And only one of them acted like a neighbor. Only one of them showed compassion. And in this case, that person was the Samaritan. A few moments ago, I said, like the expert in the law, we're lucky that Jesus is not telling us to act like our enemies. Well, unfortunately, that luck just ran out. (laughs) Because there's so much more to all of this. Because if Jesus wasn't telling us to act like our enemies, then what was he telling us? He's telling us to go be a neighbor like the Samaritan was a neighbor. To mimic either Jesus or the expert, what exactly does it mean to be a neighbor? Or more specifically, what does it mean for Fourth Avenue Church of Christ to be a neighbor to the greater metropolitan Nashville area? That's the question that we are going to answer today if we're going to be a people that boldly claims that the word of God has authority, that means we have to live like we believe it does. That means we have to do the hard work of being a neighbor even though it's not easy. Because if it were easy, or we weren't misinterpreting Leviticus 19, 18, love neighbor as self, then this parable wouldn't exist. So what does it mean to be a neighbor? Remember how I introduced myself to you at the beginning, the cute version of me, the innocent version of me? That's the version I need you to see right now because I'm gonna say some really hard things and it's coming from a place of love and I'm speaking to myself. Being a neighbor looks like loving people when it's inconvenient. Looks like loving people who we don't like or who don't like us or worse, people that we disagree with whether it be politically or theologically or socially. Being a neighbor looks like when we're going on mission, we're meeting the needs that people tell us they have rather than the needs we think they have. Mm. Being a neighbor looks like holding space for people even when we don't understand and don't agree. And to give you an exhaustive list, because that's the type of person I am, to make things easier. So, we're holding space for people who don't look like us. We're holding space for people who vote differently than us. And we're holding space for people who dress differently than us. Except for this, if you see someone in these, I need you to run. They are not here for a suburban squabble. They will end you. But, but, there's a caveat. If you see these next pair of shoes, They're probably a 16-year-old girl who doesn't know how to keep her shoes clean. But she's innocent. She probably listens to rap music when her parents aren't around, but she's rather innocent. But these last pair, these are the shoes of the saints. (laughs) Also, this is up here so my parents will buy them for me because they're sitting right there. Good shoes, safe shoes. And yet, we're not done holding space. Because we're also holding space for people in different tax brackets than us. People who identify as part of the LGBTQIA community. We're holding space for people who are deconstructing their faith. And we're also holding space for people who subscribe to different religions and denominations. And again, I have a list. So that means Catholics, Pentecostals, Muslims. Gnostics, and even Scientologists. You know, I think about this idea of being neighbor, um, and it reminds me of the worst assignment I ever had to do at Lipscomb. Luckily, Mike did not assign it. It was Walter Cerdacki. Um, We were required, I think it was our last semester, to write out a two-minute testimony And as you can see, I'm a talker. I don't know how to do anything in two minutes. It's just not my thing. However, it's been so beneficial for me as I've interviewed for various ministry positions. But luckily for you all, we have so much more than two minutes. So I'm going to give you the extended version. (laughs) Oh, man. So I'll start how I always start. Like most people in the Bible Belt, I grew up going to church. Um, However, it wasn't until high school that I really began to seek the nature of God beyond just this being that we sing songs about and pray to right before we eat and before bed. And a lovely woman who I now consider my spiritual mother discipled me. Some of you have had the honor and privilege of meeting her. And since then, I've been completely sold out for Jesus. Jesus. The only issue was that I was extremely judgmental, like a pharisaical legalistic. It's really embarrassing and hard for me to admit because in my mind, I'm almost near perfect. (laughs) Um, But that made school very difficult for me because I had this pod of friends at church and we were all basically the same version of each other in various skin tones. We dressed the same, we talked the same, we used the same Christianese, but I only got to spend like three hours a week with them. So what happens when I'm at school for 40 hours a week? As much as I'd like to tell you that I was going around and spreading the gospel, that would be a lie, and lying is a sin. I was extremely judgmental to everyone I encountered, everyone who didn't profess the faith, people who swore all the time, people in my school that used drugs and partied, super judgmental. And then there was a shift. My senior year of high school, I lost three classmates. And it was extremely hard. Um, I wasn't close to any of these people, but we'd all been in school together since we were elementary aged. And they all hit me in a different way, but the very first one completely wrecked me. Oh man, I remember we had a lunch hour back then, not this weird 25, 35 minutes y'all, y'all's kids get now. We've got a full hour. And I remember when his passing was confirmed. It was during lunch. I remember all of his friends being extremely heartbroken and distraught. And while I would like to tell you that my immediate response was compassion, it wasn't. It was anger. I was angry that my peers so carelessly used and abused legal substances. I was angry because in my heart of hearts, I knew that it was my ex-boyfriend who provided the substances for the party in which my classmate overdosed and drowned. Man, I was angry. And then there was a moment when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have language for it then, but I do now. I saw the girlfriend of the classmate of mine who'd passed. I saw her run into the bathroom with all of her friends. And that anger shifted to helplessness. Because as angry as I was, I then started to feel sorry. I had pity and compassion. So without any plan in mind, keep in mind, I was very judgmental. This group of kids does not like me and I very much do not like them. We have no positive relationship. I followed her to the bathroom, and her friends allowed me to sit with them as they wept. I'm not going to cry. Um, and then the Lord started giving me the words to speak, because for the first time, I'd seen his children the same way he sees them. I didn't see them as vigilantes or scoundrels. I didn't see them as drug users. I didn't see them as bad people. I saw them in the image of Christ. And after that encounter with the girls in the bathroom, I went around the hallways praying for every single person I saw weeping until eventually I got in trouble. It's okay, I'm, trust me, ask my parents. It was a common occurrence. <laughs> um, but. That was the very first time I can ever recall having to be a neighbor to someone that I didn't like and who didn't like me. The best part about being a neighbor is that you encounter people who are neighbors to you. So I've got a few examples of what my neighbors have looked like here in Tennessee. They have looked like my classmates sitting at my hospital bedside The Lavenders opening up their home to me when I had nowhere to go. (laughs) Ty and Thomas listening to me cry about bad dates and trying to teach me how to play sports. (laughs) Oh, it It looks like Mark and Melinda hosting my family and friends after this. Gala praying alongside me for radical healing and then rejoicing when that healing comes. It's looked like Praying in the Waldo's parking lot when it's sprinkling rain and so windy, calling down heaven with my best friend. It's looked like my community here cheering me on as I step into a new season of life and ministry, even though it means being nearly 700 miles away. So, back to the original question what does it mean to be a neighbor? I cannot in good conscience have this conversation about being a neighbor and the parable of the Good Samaritan on the last Sunday of Black History Month without mentioning a man who was a pioneer in the civil rights movement, a man who truly understood what it meant to be a neighbor. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King once said, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in American life. And while civil rights and race relations have drastically improved since he said this in 1963, it still rings true 60 years later. Only now we're segregated by race and economics and generations and denominations and politics. And now it's no longer just 11 o'clock on Sunday. It's eight o'clock and 9.30 and 1 p.m. And for the young and hip, it's Tuesdays at 645. Woe to those who contribute, who continue to contribute to the segregation of the Lord's church. May we be a church that seeks to reverse that trend. Being a neighbor isn't an easy feat. It requires us to open our eyes so that we can see the hardships that those around us face. It requires us to acknowledge the injustices that we don't understand or experience personally. The beauty of living here in Franklin and in Williamson County is that we've got everything we could ever need. We've got beautiful homes, or at least decent. Our kids, have, or y'all's kids, y'all's kids, I'm still very single, have a plethora of options for education. Oh, man, and we even get to worship in this beautiful building with a fabulous worship team. But what about those whose lives don't look like that? What about those who are not a part of this congregation where we go above and beyond for one another? What about those who are not a part of the one another? Oh, man, what about those whose quality and standard of life and living doesn't look like ours? You know, while the bubble we live in is safe and beautiful, it is just that, bubble. And that bubble is a privilege that shelters us from the harsh reality that the world outside consists of economic and racial injustices. It shelters us from having to interact with anyone in ways, anyone who's different in ways that we can't comprehend, or in ways that we refuse to understand. And although empathy is not a fruit of the spirit, it is at the heart of Jesus's message and ministry. You know, showing people the compassion, the grace, and the love that we so desperately crave ourselves is very difficult. And when Jesus said that people would know we were his disciples by the way that we showed love, he wasn't saying it to be edgy, he wasn't saying it to be cool, he was serious because even those who don't know the Lord can love people that look like them, vote like them, and think like them. Hmm. Man, but only those fully transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, only those in right relationship with the one true living God can love people when it doesn't benefit them. The love we have for our neighbor comes out of the abundance of love we have for God and the love God has for us and others. We cannot claim to love God and hate neighbor. That's not biblical. I mean, think about it. Jesus had dinner with tax collectors. Jesus empowered women so much to the point that he revealed his true identity to a Samaritan woman. Not just any woman, who by the way, Jesus empowering women, not cool, not common, but a Samaritan woman, double whammy, someone he's supposed to hate. huh? To quote one of my favorite rappers, even Jesus was homies with Judas, a man he ultimately knew would betray him. He washed his feet. He called him friend and he called him brother because that's the kind of God we serve. Jesus constantly placed himself in places and spaces that were otherwise avoided by other Jews and Pharisees to be with people who were outcast and marginalized, people who didn't fit the standards to be a good Jew. Oh man, and he did it because he knew what it meant to be neighbor. I'm gonna encourage you by saying, let us go and do likewise. Or in the words of the great poet Tupac, let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other.